Welcome back to our series in the Gospel of Mark. Do me a favor, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our study in the book of Mark. And let me remind us of the setting. At this juncture in Mark, Jesus is literally marching to Jerusalem for Passover and ultimately his own death on a cross for the sins of the world. He's marching to Jerusalem to become our Passover sacrifice. And as he is ascending to Jerusalem, he's teaching his disciples and us some important life lessons for establishing his ethos in our community. Last week, James Hawkins pointed out that, and I quote, Jesus took the time to sit down with them, the disciples, and teach them an intimate lesson about servant leadership and hospitality toward all people. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our study in the book of Mark. This morning, let me give you an overview of our talk. We're going to look at, first of all, the problem of exclusivity. And then Jesus warns us to be very careful not to cause a little one to sin. He warns us to get rid of anything that causes us to sin. And then he challenges us to be salty, really salty. So back to the disciples. How do they do with servant leadership and hospitality toward all people? Not so well. First off this morning, we see the problem of exclusivity. Do me a favor, look at verse 38, Mark chapter 9 and verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now, it's a bit surprising that, that John, known as the one whom Jesus loved, would speak up at this point. But we also need to remember that he was, he was one of the sons of thunder. John doesn't like the fact that someone who is not part of his group is having some spiritual success. Now, it's, it's rather ironic, isn't it? A few weeks ago, we saw the nine disciples fail in their attempt to cast out a demon. And here, he's trying to stop someone who was casting out not one, but several demons. What's really going on here is that John is exhibiting an attitude of superiority towards someone who is not in his group. And this shows the narrow exclusivism of those who thought they, they were the ones who were closest to Jesus. In short, John is jealous that someone else is having spiritual success in Jesus' name. Beloved, we need to develop a kingdom focus, not just a church focus. So here are a few principles that, that should help us think inclusively. Number one, we don't have an exclusive lock on truth. I, I love New Heights, but that doesn't mean we're the best or that we're spiritually superior to others. If someone is a follower of Jesus Christ, then he or she is my, my brother or sister. We're on the same team. Differences don't have to divide us. Secondly, new heights can't reach everyone. It's tempting to think that NWA is saturated with churches that are getting the gospel out. Not so much. This may shock you, but there are tens of thousands of people within 20 miles of us that don't know Jesus and don't go to church. Believe it or not, 
There are, there are more people in our community than there are churches to hold them. New Heights, we can't do this alone. We need the entire community of churches to reach the lost and disciple the saved. By the way, you need to hear this. There are other churches doing other kingdom things more effectively than New Heights Church, to which I say, praise God. Number three, we don't have to condone everything that another church believes. Now, let me emphatically say that doctrine does matter. But we don't have to agree on every fine point of doctrine before we can can celebrate what God is doing. As one pastor says, he says this, is a great quote. He says, it never ceases to amaze me how God blesses those I don't agree with. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I love this quote from church history. You've heard it before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. First off this morning, we see the problem of exclusivity. Now Jesus takes a pretty severe right turn. And secondly, he warns us to be very careful not to cause a little one to sin. Now, before we go any further, let me just point out that This is a very unique portion of Scripture. It's full of graphic terminology, dramatic acts, severe warnings, and rather violent threats. It really is a passage about radical discipleship, and the language bears testimony to that. It calls for radical behaviors, and it shows us just how radical it is to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So, in our remaining verses, Jesus is calling for radical discipleship. I think this is a message that is highly necessary for the day in which we live when under the name of Christianity and even evangelical Christianity, there's so much superficiality. So the language here is severe, extreme, fanatical. And as I've said before, it's radical language. And that fits the radical nature of our Lord's invitation to true discipleship. With that said, listen to the the front half of Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. Jesus puts a young child in the midst of the disciples and and then picked him up to make the point that we must become least and last if we're serious about following Christ. We're called to receive the forgotten and the marginalized, the preborn, children, Minorities, orphans, widows, the poor, the disabled, the mentally challenged, those who are deaf or blind, those in prison, immigrants, the persecuted, and refugees. And picking up on that scene, Jesus now refers to little ones who believe in him. Now, Jesus could be referring to to children or to brothers and sisters in Christ or both. Most likely, I think it was both. Regardless, we're cautioned against causing even one of these little ones to to stumble or sin. Now, the word for stumble here is the word scandalizo, from which we get scandalize. It means to offend, to entice, to entrap, or to put a stumbling block in front of someone. I'm so grieved when I hear a Christian say something like this, and I've heard this many times. You know what? I have liberty in Christ to do whatever I want to do. There's freedom. What I say to that is this, you might have liberty, liberty in some areas, 
But love dictates that you and I must watch how we live because others are watching us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul wrote this, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Jesus wants us to know how serious it is to cause a Christian to cave into sin. Look at the second half of verse 42. He says this, It would be better, better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. The word translated millstone is literally a donkey stone that was so heavy, several tons, that a donkey was tied to it in order to turn it. The image The image of wearing a millstone, a donkey stone necklace and being thrown into the sea would be absolutely horrifying, especially to a people who were a little nervous about water. You see, the Israelites were an agrarian people and they avoided the sea whenever possible. In addition, they were aware that the the Romans sometimes carried out executions by tying heavy stones, a millstone around the necks of people and throwing them into rivers and lakes. I can't imagine a more horrible death. And yet Jesus said this is preferable to causing a fellow follower to fall into sin. I wrote down six, there's more than this, but I wrote down just six ways that we can cause a Christ follower to slide into sin. Number one, by not practicing what we preach. Number two, by gossiping about someone. Proverbs 26.20 says, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. Number three, by directly tempting someone to sin. Asking someone to lie for us would be an example. Fourth, by involvement in sexual immorality. This causes us to sin and leads someone else to sin as well. Now, if you're a Christian, you're called to treat your boyfriend or girlfriend with purity. When I first became a follower of Jesus at the age of 17, I was so convicted about purity that I asked my then unbelieving mom, because her penmanship was so much better than mine, I asked her to write out 1 Timothy 5.2 and put it on my wall in my room. It goes like this. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. If you're a follower of Jesus and living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're not only in sin, but you're causing another believer to sin. Here's another one. By treating others unkindly and wrongly, we can cause rebellion or outbursts of anger. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And then lastly, by teaching false doctrine, we can lead people astray. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's works, God's work, which is by faith. Jesus warns us about the problem of exclusivity, and he cautions us to be very careful not to cause a little one to sin. Thirdly, this morning, Jesus says to get rid of anything that causes us to sin. Jesus now uses the strongest of all language to communicate that it's better to lose limbs and have an eye gouged out than it is to spend eternity in hell. Mark chapter 8 and verse 43. 
If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the hand, foot, and eye represent the, the, what I call the big three, the three big ways we sin. The hand refers to our actions. The foot speaks of where we hang out, and, and the eye stands for what we look at or our desires. And Jesus wants us to deal severely with sin in our lives. He's obviously using figurative language when he says, cut it off and pluck it out. We know that's the case because when we studied Mark chapter 7, we know that Jesus says the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. In other words, we could cut off our hand and gouge out our eye and still think of ways to, to sin. Please, please write this down. Jesus is not after physical amputation, but rather spiritual mortification. Because sin doesn't start in our hands, it starts in our hearts. Now, the point of these verses is that we're to deal with disobedience severely, radically, harshly, and immediately. Too many of us have become way too cozy with sin. If there's a relationship that is causing you to sin, get out of it immediately. If our feet are taking us to a place that leads us to sin, we need to cut this activity off right now. If we're a serious disciple of Christ, we don't dabble in sin. Jesus is telling us that there's nothing so valuable that it's worth going to hell over. The word better is used three times to help us see that whatever we have to do now to sever us from sin is, is, much, is much to be preferred to spending eternity in hell. So let me ask us, what do we need to cut off? What do we need to radically remove out of our lives? What action or thought do we need to amputate? Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 3. He says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That's pretty strong language. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. I've given you this quote before, but it's worth repeating. The Puritan John Owen said this, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. The word hell is used three times in this passage. In verses 43, 45, and 47, the word is Gehenna and was used of the city garbage dump outside Jerusalem. Now, the background for this is pretty graphic. In ancient Israel, during the, the reigns of King, kings Ahaz and Manasseh, children were literally sacrificed to Molech, the pagan deity. And these sacrifices happened in a deep ravine that came to be called Gehenna. The prophet Jeremiah spoke out against child sacrifice, and King Josiah put an end to it, turning this valley into the city dump. The, the refuse from the city included carcasses from animals, and the bodies of criminals were deposited in, in the dump. And to keep it from overflowing, fires were started that never went out, being fed constantly by incoming garbage. So when Jesus used the word hell, people thought of this horrific garbage pit. 
because people considered Gehenna a cursed place of judgment and impurity. It came to serve as an illustration of hell. The image of the extreme horror of hell is designed to imprint upon our minds the reality of the never-ending punishment of those who reject Christ. Are you aware that Jesus spoke more about hell than he spoke about heaven? Here are eight things we know about hell. Hell is an an actual place. It's a place of eternal punishment and judgment. Hell is is a place of divine wrath. Hell is also a place of of terrible, terrible torment. It's filled with misery and pain. Hell is, is a place of unquenchable thirst. Hell is also a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lastly, hell is where eternal separation happens. First, we see the problem of exclusivity. Second, we We must be very careful not to cause a little one to sin. Third, we must get rid of anything that causes us to sin. And and lastly, Jesus challenges us to be salty, really salty. Now, as if the passage we've already looked at hasn't been hard enough, verses 49 and 50 are among some of the most difficult to understand in the entire Bible. Let Let me read these for us. Mark chapter 9, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Now, the word salt is used five different times in one form or another in three different ways. Let me walk us through what I think the three different ways are. The first way that we're to be salty is to embrace suffering and sacrifice. Salt and fire were key ingredients of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Every acceptable sacrifice had to be sprinkled with salt, according to Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13. Let me read that for us. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all of your offerings. So when Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire, I believe he's telling us that as living sacrifices will be refined through trials and sufferings. Unbelievers will face the never-ending fires of hell. Here's a question that Jesus seems to be asking. Would you rather endure the fires of hell as a lost sinner or the purifying fires of God as a sacrifice for his glory? We're called to willingly embrace the salt of a sacrificial life. The second way that the word salt is used is that we are to pursue purity and don't become spiritually contaminated. Verse 50 adds that salt is good. There was a saying in that culture that went like this, the world cannot survive without salt. In fact, the word salary comes from the Latin word for salt. Interestingly, Roman soldiers were paid their wages in salt. That's where the phrase Not worth your salt comes from. Jesus continues in verse 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? The main source of salt came from the area around the Dead Sea, also known as the Salt Sea. Now this coarse salt, it was good, but sometimes it had ingredients in it causing contamination and ultimately leaving the salt savorless. You get the point, right? Salt with no flavor is worthless. 
So the question for us is, do we have any impurities that are contaminating our commitment to Jesus? Have we been compromising as a Christian and lost our savor? Please hear this. The world cannot survive without the salt of spirit-filled Christians. Third way that the word salt is used here. As salty followers, we are to intentionally influence those who are lost. Look at verse 50. Look how it ends. Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Have salt among yourselves is, is a present imperative, meaning that Christ followers, they must constantly be evaluating the amount of influence they're having on the world, the world around them. Salt served as a condiment, a preservative, a flavoring, and an antiseptic. We need to live salty lives, making people thirsty for Jesus. Salt doesn't do any good if it, if it doesn't come in contact with that which needs seasoning, does it? Too many of us keep our salt in, in the salt shaker instead of sprinkling it in our, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our campuses. The final challenge is for us to be at peace with each other. This completes the thought raised earlier in the passage when the the disciples were arguing about their personal status and group superiority. As Christians, if we aren't at peace with each other, we won't be able to offer the peace of God to those who are at at war with Him. Quarreling Christians short-circuit our witness for Christ. As I finish this morning, uh, I want to give a challenge to two groups of people who who are watching. The first challenge is is for those who have yet to put their faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked where you will be a hundred years from now? I believe you will be somewhere and you will be conscious because everyone will live forever. I believe you will be among the damned or the delivered in hell or in heaven. Hell is is where every one of us is headed unless Christ rescues us. But Jesus is compassionate and he desires that all will put their trust in him. When Jesus spoke of judgment, he literally cried. I mean, he cried. Luke chapter 19, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Ezekiel 18 and verse 23, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Let me ask you this morning, will you turn from your sins right now and put your faith in the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ right now so you will live? If you've done that, or you'd like to do that, and you need to follow up with someone, please Email us at prayer at newheightschurch.com and give us your information and someone will get back with you. Or or, or do this, call us directly at New Heights Church and someone on staff will call you back. The number is is on the screen below me. Maybe, Maybe you'd like to be baptized. I would encourage you to not put that off. As we look throughout the scriptures, we see people coming to Jesus and then guess what? They immediately get baptized. If you're willing, we'll find the pool or jacuzzi or whatever body of water needed to do it, and then we'll baptize you. The second challenge is for those who know and love Jesus, but you're not living like it. The challenge is for you to say no to sin and yes to His holiness. Simply put, 
It's time to surrender fully so you don't lose your saltiness. Maybe the things you're doing, the places you're going, and the things you're looking at have severely hampered your walk with Jesus. I've got a great word for you. Repent. Turn from that empty way of living and turn back to Jesus. His arms are wide open. And even more than that, he's worth it. He died for you. He loves you. And he wants you to be pure and holy so that you might bear spiritual fruit and experience and experience the abundant life he has for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you again this morning for your truth that enlightens our minds. The joy of learning it, the delight of it. As the psalmist said, I delight in your law, O Lord. Oh, how I love your law. We love your word, God. That delight and that love, that affection for the truth overwhelms us and brings us joy as we learn these things. What brings us even greater joy is the application of these things in obedience, Father. And that even brings joy to you. So, may we be faithful, Lord, to apply these things to our hearts and give you the praise for what you will do as the word finds life through us. And we pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.